Remind you, Elijah has had this amazing, awesome showdown and then fled like a sissy at the threat, at seeing the threat of Jezebel. Currently, the king of the northern area of Israel is his name is Ahab or Ahab. He's the seventh king of that particular uh, kingdom, if you will, at this point. And he has been united with those that are just above him. Today, that would be Lebanon. Back then, it was Tyre and Sidon. And he is united with them through the marriage of their king, Ethbaal's daughter, Jezebel. They've uh, married off Jezebel to the king, King Ahav. As a result of that, you can know that no one's going to evade you when you know their little princess is there as your queen. They have a child. That child's name is Atalia. Atalia, by the way, will marry King Jehoshaphat's son, Judas Prince. His name is Jehoram. Now, what that means is, is that because the, in essence, then the king has married the very wicked and bizarre high priest murderer, now king in position, Ethbaal, married his daughter from the north. They have peace in the north. In the south, for the first time in the history since the split of the two of Judah and of Israel, there's been in essence a kind of a unity in the south because Ahav and Jezebel's daughter, Atalia, marries King Jehoshaphat's son, Jehoram. So what that means is in the simplest sense, Israel kind of has this peace on both sides politically. In other words, north and south are temporarily quiet through political matrimony. However, one of the things we're going to learn in the next few chapters, and we only have a few chapters before the end of First Kings, uh, chapter 20 and 21 and 22, and then that's it. And then we kind of move from that into Second Kings. Uh, understand in this what we have is a very unholy union. And this is really important to kind of wrap our heads around. Because part of what God is telling us in this is that he's going to warn us just that all unity isn't great unity. There is a unity that we are to actually seek, and there is a unity we're not to seek. The unity that we are to seek is with people who love God and are unified in primary purpose. But those that have declared war on the living God are not people we are actually to seek union with. That becomes the problem here. Uh, Because what we're going to see is with Israel's constant, in essence, prodigal mindset in the north, being unified with even a good king like Jehoshaphat in the south is a terrible idea on Jehoshaphat's side. We'll see that not this week, God willing, next. But here we are, we're back in Elijah's situation. He's having a complete Elijah complex. It's where we get it from, because though he was this brilliant and powerful man who stood against the 450, uh, well, and 850 prophets of Baal and Asherah, well, we're going to find that she's going to replace them. We'll see that later at least 400 of them, that in all of that, he every time he listens, this man is a man of power, but the moment that he starts to look and not listen, he becomes like anyone, overcome with fear, and he becomes overwhelmed. So here he is, he's run now, he's made his way, if you will, uh, from there to this place uh, in uh, Mount Sinai. That's kind of where we've kind of taken it at this point. And now God is actually talking to him, and he's telling him, they look at uh, you really need to listen. And, he, and what God does is he brings him through a series of things that Elijah would naturally be prone to assume God is in. And be that a strong wind, be that an earthquake, be that a great fire. And all of those things, we just we seek those experiences, assuming that if we could get that experience, God must be in the middle of it. And God wasn't in the middle of any of those. But then we read a still small voice. And understand, God again, God is getting Elijah back to listening, just like us getting us back to that place where our faith is driven by what we hear and not just by what we see. Now, Elijah has been hiding out in a cave now, uh, and that's part of the fun of all of this. Uh, And as he's kind of hiding out in this cave, God's like, what are you doing here? Elijah's like, look at, I've been obedient, man. I've worked really hard. And I mean, this is a loose paraphrase, but again, don't just believe me. You know, I, I... I've done what you told me. And you know what it's gotten me? I feel like I'm alone now. I feel like in all of this, trying to stand up for you, God, and trying to, to really stand up for what is right, I wouldn't have expected this. But here I am. I'm kind of feeling like I'm all alone. And then God goes and takes him through these, he takes him through these things, these these experiences, the, and we can, we can parallel those to Elijah's life up to this point, but the wind and the earthquake and the fire. And, and then in verse 15, the Lord says to him, now go. What are, what are you doing, Elijah? What are you doing? And he says it again. He says, you know, 
I've worked really hard and here I am, I'm alone. And that still small voice says, go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, anoint Chatzael. Chatzael, by the way, means God has seen as king over Syria. Then you shall also anoint Yehu. Yehu! The names are kid that. The son of Nimshi as king over Israel. And Elisha, the, the son of Shaphat, of Abel Machala, you shall anoint his prophet in your place. It shall be that whoever escapes the sword of Chatzael, Yahu will kill. And whoever escapes the sword of Yahu, Elisha will kill. Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed them. We start this with God, in essence, handing Elijah his firing notice. That seems pretty evident here. He's telling him to go from where he is in Mount Choreb to this distance of 753 kilometers, if you will, 468 miles from where he is to Damascus, which is in north area. It's the capital of Syria. Now, understand, Israel is no authority in Syria. So, in Syria. so imagine what it would be like this prophet, who's in essence been the bane of the king of the north of, of Israel, goes up to a foreign land, if you will, and he anoints a king of a land that he has, no, in essence, no jurisdiction over, except that all the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And so he's, he's going to go, imagine he's going to show up in Syria and he's going to have to anoint a new king. We're going to find out what the old king's doing, Ben-Hadad, because he'll show up in this chapter, the guy that he's replacing. And then there's this other guy, then the king, by the way, Ahav, that's there at the moment. You just need to know you're going to anoint somebody to actually take his place as well. In other words, we're firing everyone and we're starting over. Yehu, by the way, his name means he is God. He is Yah. The son of Nimshi, which means pulled out the king of Israel. And then Elisha, this guy, by the way, we don't have any record prior to this point. He says, by the way, his name means literally God cries out or it's the God who hears. The son of Shaphat, which means judge of a place named Meadow of Dancing. You shall anoint him prophet in your place. So he goes, look, you are not done, Elijah. Even though, Eliyahu, you are not in, I mean, even though you've, you've had these great victories and you can bank on those and say, look at these great moments in my life. Here you are hiding in a cave. I want you to know, even though your time is limited, make the best of what remains. Though you don't have a lot of time left, do go out well. And what you're going to need to do is, I want you to recognize God has this way of making sure you have replacements in place. And he goes, so here it is. I want you to make sure that this guy is going to take your place, Elisha. And I want you to make sure this guy is going to be king. And then this guy is going to be king in Syria. And he goes, now listen. And then he tells us the strange thing is basically like one guy is going to kill. And if he gets past that guy, this guy is going to kill him. And if it gets past him, then the prophet's going to kill him. And you have to start asking, well, who in the world does God want to kill? And if you're going to anoint a new king, and by the way, and then you're going to anoint a new enemy king. And then you're going to anoint your replacement. And in essence, you're anointing three killers. Who are they killing? And why? Well, and the why is because there is this unholy trinity, this unholy union between these three groups, and it needs to be severed, specifically that of Tyre and Sidon, uh, which, by the way, the king of Syria is going to actually perfectly interfere with. Now, please hear me in this, because there's a lot of talk about unity. Oh, we all need to join hands and sing Kumbaya, and if it could just look like an old Coca-Cola commercial, everybody will be happy. Come on, it's Christmas. Just grab the hand and everyone just drop your differences and come on, isn't he all the same God? No, he's not. My God saves people. He doesn't just run around and just tell everyone, just, you guys should just run around and kill everybody that doesn't agree with you. That's not the point here. But the point is that there is, there needs to be certain division and there needs to be certain unity. There should be unity among believers and there should be a separation between us and those who've declared war on God. Oddly enough, it seems like often the church does the opposite. We're quick to argue with each other and draw battle lines like it's sort of like Romeo and Juliet. And yet somewhere in all of that, we, we like big, give big hugs to the world while we kind of flick our nose at people who actually are going to heaven with us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 18, it says, First of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. There is a difference between disunity among the family and unity with the world. 
Second Corinthians six seventeen says, Therefore, come out of them and be separate, says the Lord. Get away from those things that are unclean and I'll receive you. Which is quoting, by the way, from Isaiah 52, Ezekiel 20 and Ezekiel 20, verses 34 and 41. James does it this way, and I kind of like James because he'd be the first person to punch you in the face with the truth and, and love. And he says, adulterers and adulteresses, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You can't get more clear than that. Now understand, somewhere in all of this, this idea of friendship evangelism doesn't work if James is actually part of the program. Now, relational evangelism makes sense. You want to relate to people to bring them to the cross? Totally get it. But the idea of trying to befriend the world? Well, James has a real problem with that. And again, I didn't write that. God wrote it through James James 4.4. 4. Take a look at it yourself. In 1 Kings chapter 22, what we'll find a couple chapters from now, verse 44, is that Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, has made peace with the king of Israel. So much so that it was almost at his own demise. So, Elijah, look it. You're in a cave. You're, you're having a pity party because at this moment you just feel like, where is the real witness of God? I mean, I'm trying so hard to really kind of toe the line here. And I look around at all that stuff that's called God's people and it looks like madness. It looks like a circus. And it just doesn't look like Jesus. And I'm so fed up with it. And you feel like you're the only one. And God goes, no, you're not the only one. And you've got some, look at, I've got 7,000 people who are clearly, that would stand with you if you were willing to listen to me first before you started looking around. So, I want you to start going and getting your replacement. And theirs as well. Verse 19. So he departed from there and he found Elisha, the son of Shaphat. He was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen before him, and he was with the 12th. Then Eliahu, Elijah, passed by him and threw his mantle on him, and he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Please let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I'll follow you. He said, Go back again. What have I done to you? So Elijah turned back from him, took the yoke of oxen, and slaughtered them and boiled their flesh, using the oxen's equipment, and gave them to the people, and they ate. Then he arose and followed Elijah and came and became his servant. Okay. It just gets more fun by the moment, doesn't it? Okay, what do we know about Elijah from the beginning? Obviously, he was somebody mentioned by God and said, there's your replacement. I don't know how in the world Eliyahu found him. He's a prophet, so maybe he's got an inside line on that. But what we do know about the guy is he is bank. He is rolling in it. How do I know that? Because he's got 12 yoke of oxen. Now, anyone kind of get the idea? A single ox, in the simplest sense, is kind of like a tractor. When you put two oxen together, you have what's called a yoke. This is the idea of putting one particular piece of machinery, in this case usually it's a piece of wood, that holds the two ox together, oxen together, and then behind it you have a blade that you in essence kind of ride and you push down, and that in essence carves rows so you can put seed deeper in the soil, and that's how you farm traditionally in this case. Now, having a yoke of oxen, two oxen, it's important to know that's a lot of money. Now, can you imagine what it would look like is you were going to go and you're going to go find your replacement and you find a guy and he's got 12 tractors rolling at the same time with combines behind each of them. The guy's probably not the poorest farmer that you've ever seen. Now, that's where we start this. But understand, if you get the idea that if you have two animals, they should be as closely matched as possible for a few reasons. One is the way that they fit each other's shoulders should be the same because otherwise, if one's smaller than the other, then the weight tends to fall on the, the shorter one or on the taller one. And then basically, then it's just an unfair disadvantage to one of the animals. It also then chafes their neck and it chafes their shoulder. So sooner or later, they're not going to be worth much. But it's worse than that. If you take one that's a really old oxen and you take another oxen that's actually quite young, that especially during the time when, you know, oxen are kind of looking for those little heifers out there, hey, little, you know, moo-moo. Well, you get the idea that what happens is, is the older one has now been trained to do his job, but the younger one, he's kind of out trying to check out the clubs. 
So what happens is you have two oxen that are want to go in opposite directions. Ultimately, what happens is both of them get chafed, both of them get worked, and they both break their, they gnaw themselves down to their own bones and their shoulders, and you end up breaking your plow. Now, that's not good for the farmer, and that's certainly not good for the ox. The reason I say that is, if you understand that, you understand why Paul uses the metaphor in 2 Corinthians when he tells us not to be unequally yoked. Unequally yoked is so much more than just, you're a Christian and they're not. Though that clearly applies. In a situation where it's like, you know what, and here's the problem. We tell people, I just want to find, you're single, I just want to find the godliest person out there. But if you're going to be honest, what I want to find is somebody that's super gorgeous, that coincidentally is actually also quite godly. Because after all, nobody's actually from a distance going to see how godly they are, but they are going to see how fine they are. And I don't want my friends to look and go, hmm, you're out with, what's this, what's, what drew you? godliness though we know that's what we're supposed to be doing now clearly in scripture that's the case where one oxen's going one direction and one's going the opposite it's not good for either of you and you watch these relationships you jump into where you're like i just want to get closer to the lord and they're like i just want to get away from the lord well how in the world are you two going to walk together at best both of you are compromising but let's be honest You already compromised to start going out with someone like that if Jesus really was the most important thing in your life. But it's more than that. It's more than just somebody that wants to run to hell and you want to run to heaven. What about the person that's just okay with God and they, they don't want to go to hell and they're cool with heaven, but you really want all that God has for you? It's still unequally yoked. You know, don't come to me or to if you have somebody else that you would call your pastor and say, well, they say they're a Christian. Because that's just not going to work. Satan would say he's a Christian to go out with you if he could pull you away from the Lord. As a matter of fact, for some of you, you probably thought you've already dated Satan in one way or another. You're like, oh man, if I look back, that's clearly Satan. If it wasn't, it was certainly somebody that's on his bankroll. Oh, you may be right. But I challenge you to find somebody that you are convinced is more in love with Jesus than you are, and somehow they tend to think the same of you. That you really are like, dang, I'm really going to have to charge for Jesus if I'm really going to keep this relationship solid. Isn't that what you want? I mean, if you were training for the Olympics, would you want someone that's sort of like super pudgy and lazy as your training partner? You're like, okay, we're going to need to get up before dawn. And they're like, before dawn? I was thinking before noon. You're like, okay, I'll meet you in the middle. We'll get up at 10. You already noticed there's the compromise happening. And I watched this happen. But wouldn't, wouldn't we want to be Olympic Christians in that sense? Somebody that's like, come on. Let's go for it with everything. Let's exercise our faith. Let's do this. And that's what we need. Well, I'm here to challenge you. Back in our story, which, by the way, is history, but it, we're pulling ourselves into it. There's a guy, and he's bank. He's got a lot of... He's, he's just John Deered out here with 12 yoke of oxen. That's 24 oxen. And Elijah, then, he does this thing. He throws his mantle on top of him. Now, does anyone even know what a mantle is? I mean, we kind of read it in Scripture. So what happens is we're like, oh, yeah, the mantle. And we'll use it. Oh, Lord, there comes a prophet and he's going to let me. He put his mantle on me. But we don't even know if he put his mantle on him because we don't know what a mantle is. Is it a beanie? Is it like a scarf? You know, I mean, what is it that he put? Is it a small cat? You know, oh, you put your mantle on me. That's awesome. I mean, if we don't know what it is, well, understand the term for mantle is the term adret. Try that. Adret. Now, it's Hebrew because it's Hebrew. You can't go adret. Adaret. That wasn't bad. Now, in the simplest sense, what it means is a covering. It would be your outer cloak would be the idea. The first time, by the way, actually we see it registered in Scripture this way is in Genesis 25, 25 about Esau. Remember that when the twins were born, Jacob and Esau? 
And it says, the first one came out red all over like a hairy garment. And the word garment's the word adaret. In other words, it's like the guy was wearing a fur. We get that. We know that in Joshua, if you remember when God said, okay, we're going to take... Uh, we're going to take Jericho, Jericho, and when you do, don't take any of it. Let the whole thing be wasted. And yet what happens, there's one guy, and his name is Achan. We might say Achan. He really does live up to the name Achan because he's very much Achan by the end of the story. And he looks, and he's like, yeah, let's not take, ooh, Babylonian garment. Nice. Now, that just doesn't make any sense to me at all. Now, the wedge of gold and the silver and all that, it kind of makes sense, I guess, because you know it's going to be currency. But let's just play this out for a second. We as a group have been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. How do you think your clothes look? And we've been wearing these same clothes for 40 years. Now, we do read that the sandals didn't wear out, our feet didn't swell. So we kind of get the idea they were, you know, that um, it wasn't like we were all kind of looking like genuine hippies from the 60s with everything kind of discolored and, and ripped. Back in the days when you didn't buy ripped jeans, you actually earned those. Anyways, uh, I buy ripped jeans now too, by the way. Uh, but consider this. We're all kind of wearing the same thing. We all kind of look like something that in essence looked stepped out of Woodstock or whatever or Glastonbury or whatever. And all of a sudden you're going to go and you're going to kind of pull up like this bright purple lame Armani suit. Where in the world are you going to wear that? You're going to take this thing and someone's going to go, hey, Hugo, where'd you get that? And he's like, oh, this old thing? I brought this from Egypt. Let's just be honest. I mean, it just shows you how senseless, but the term garment there is the same term, adaret. From that point on, really, the only time you see this other than the book of Jonah is with Elijah and Elisha. Now, the king, by the way, in Jonah 3 when, when, when Jonah shows up and says, oh, 40 days and you're toast, you're going to so fry, loose paraphrase. And the king of Nineveh repents. Well, what we read is he lays aside his royal robe and puts on sackcloth. That royal robe term is adoret for what it's worth. So, I mean, think of it this way. You know, it's, we might, you know it's, it's, it's January here and we know that it's winter now because the rain has gone diagonal. Right. I mean, it doesn't really snow. It just feels like it should. And it just comes that way at you. And so we all wear those kind of long black kind of petticoat things. Well, that would be your address would be the idea. That would be your outer coat. Well, just the same. I really beat that into the ground, but you get the idea. So this guy basically, he walks by and he just takes his coat and he just throws it on Elisha. And Elisha's like, whoa, I kind of know what that means. He's like, uh... Please let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I'll follow you. Please know this. There are two reasons to turn back when God calls you. Now, we don't read at all up to this point that he had any warning. I could have, but we just don't read it. We don't read anywhere that Elijah was sort of sitting around and it was like, wait a minute, wait a minute, I get to, oh, Eliyahu's coming, and he's going to go and put his coat on me. You know, we don't get any. All we just know is that somewhere down the line, out of nowhere, Elijah sort of shows up, throws his coat on him and keeps walking. And the guy's like, okay, hold on a second. And there's two reasons to turn back. One is to genuinely say goodbye. And the other is to kind of check with everyone to kind of take a consensus of whether this is a good idea. It is very imperative to recognize which one you do when God places a call on you. Because I want to warn you, when you know that God places a call on you, looking backwards is the wrong direction. Now, there is a situation in the Gospels of Luke and, and Matthew specifically where Jesus is actually walking and a man comes up and says, I will follow you, but first let me go bury my father. Maybe some of you are familiar with the story. And Jesus says something and it sounds pretty harsh. He says, well, let the dead bury their dead. You come and follow me. And then there's another person who says, well, you know, I'm going to, I'll go, but first let me go and say goodbye to my mom and dad. And, and he goes, look at nobody who puts their hands in the plow and looks backwards is actually, for, in essence, qualifies for the kingdom of God. And you go, wow, that just seems so harsh. Well, what we see with Elijah's hands here is that he goes genuinely to say goodbye. And how do I know that? Because he actually destroys all the John Deere's in the process. All the tractors become dinner. This was a guy who was genuinely burning his bridges to return. 
Now, I will have to develop that because now I see these kind of scary situations, the scenarios from Luke and Matthew. So follow me on the sidetrack. Forgive me, but it's important. In Hebrew culture, the firstborn male has a lot of responsibilities. He has the responsibility of carrying on the family honor. He has the responsibility of carrying on the family trade occupation. And he also has the responsibility of carrying on, well, the family burial. So let's just play this out for a moment. Follow me on this. Jaden Daniel Hugo. Which of the three of you is the oldest? I'm not talking about like, where's Cardigan? So he's probably the oldest. But which one of you is genuinely the oldest? Is it still Daniel? Okay. Okay. So Daniel, you would be my firstborn. This is so important in culture that I actually split up my inheritance, which for me is going to be some old instruments and I don't know. I don't know what else you're going to get. But uh, and some cool, really cool old books. You split it up into an extra part. So since there's three sons, I would split it up into four parts. Are you following me so far? Okay, good. Those of you who nodded, thank you. All right, so I've split it up into four parts. Now, that means that Daniel, as the oldest, gets half of my inheritance. You do realize that, right? Because he gets two of the four parts. Nice job. But Daniel has a responsibility to do that. How do I make sure? Now, again, carrying on the family trade, I've been raising him up because ultimately, if I raise up Daniel to carry on the family trade, Daniel then in turn can help raise up Hugo and raise up Jaden for that same purpose because then it kind of, he not only learns, but he learns how to teach it so that he learns how to do the same thing himself. That's a great thing. So that's, I can watch that before I die unless I'm mysteriously run over by a herd of yak or something and I didn't see it coming and I die early. But for the most part, let's just assume that's the case. Then, so that's already okay. Now, as far as family honor, I would want to raise you in ways that I expect you to behave that's consistent with our family. But the burial thing, well, let's be honest, I'm really not around for that. And the way that the burial happens is quite simple. That once I die, as you're probably aware of, the one thing that Israel is really lacking is space. It's like San Francisco and, if you will, like a lot of London. We don't have a lot of space. So burying everybody in sort of a two-meter long box is a bad idea. So what happens is, is that when I were to die, Daniel would take my body and put it in a thing that's called a flesh eater. Well, we use the Greek term for it. The word for flesh is sarch. The word for eating is thikas. So the word is sarkfikas, or we would say sarcophagus. Sarcophagus. And I sit in this thing for about a year. Well, I'm, I'm not doing much. I'm, I'm rotting, basically. And in that year, what happens is all that's left by the time we're done are my bones and dental records. Daniel then is able to take all that remains of me, and at this point, it's not gooey and nasty or stinketh, and he can put it then in something that's just a little longer than the longest bone, which is my femur, and a little wider than the widest bone, which is my skull. So he puts it in this thing called an ossuary, which is in essence a bone box, and it's roughly a little bit larger than a bread box. Now, by doing that, what happens is then Daniel can take that bread box and put it, that bone box, and put it next to my father's and their father's and their father's. And now we've got this kind of cool little game of Jenga going on where, you know, we're all kind of stacking up all of these things in the family plot. Does that make sense? So, okay, so if you know that much, then know this. How do I make sure that in a year from now, Daniel hasn't just gone to, to, the, to Jamaica to find out uh, his roots where he makes pizza, you know, uh, for his national... and. Uh, how do, how do I know he's, how do I guarantee he's going to give me that proper burial? Because as far as I'm concerned, in Hebrew tradition, that's really important. Well, that's simple. Hit him where it hurts. Don't give him the money until then. So it's quite simple. When I die, and there I am, and I'm with the Lord, so you guys get to fight over it. Of that four portions, three of those portions are handed out at my death. Hugo gets his, Jaden gets his, and Daniel gets one of those two portions. But he gets the other portion the year later when I've given myself, when I've been given the proper burial. Does that make sense? That's the incentive to make sure that that bone box is put in its proper place. Now, when this man comes to Jesus and he says, I will follow you, but first let me bury my father, 
He doesn't say my father's dying. He says, I want to give him a proper burial. Understand what's happening. He's kind of going, you don't understand. I am so close to getting the rest of this inheritance. I am so close. Just can I wait? You know, I'll cash in in this in a couple months and then I'll have all this money to follow you. And Jesus is like, you might want to choose your inheritance now, son. Now, what would happen if Daniel would have just left and went and went to follow Jesus at that moment? Well, then it would be the responsibility of the next brother. So I'm I'm not sure. Is that you, Hugo, at that point? I don't know. You guys can argue over that later. But then so in other words, Daniel would lose out on a few of those old books and at least one left handed instrument. And maybe the grand piano. But I mean, in, in all of that, that's the point. And get the idea again that Jesus isn't just looking at someone and going, hey, come on now, you can't do that. He knows that for many, when they kind of go back and they kind of go back to their household, it is, you know, you know what it's like when you have a pushy salesman and you have to try to be kind and not just kind of go, no, I don't want your stupid thing, you know? And you're like, oh, and you, we say like one of those kind of trying not to lie things like, oh, I'm going to go walk this off and. And maybe I'll come back if I really need it, which is true, but you know you don't need it, so you know you're not coming back. But you're trying not to just to go, I don't want your stupid thing, you know. So you're like, okay, well, well, understand Jesus knows when he's being played that way too, and he's not playing hard sale with you. He's not in your face forcing you. He's going, I'm giving you a choice to follow me. And you're like, okay, well, I'm really cool with the idea, but first let me go and talk to my friends. The Lord's like, well, that's the end of that. You're not going farther than that. You know that. You and I both know that. The reason I say that is Elisha is one of the rare cases here where somebody actually genuinely goes back to say goodbye. We knew when we left the central coast of California that would not be our church anymore. That was it. There was no going back. That was not. That's not like, well, someday when all of this kind of comes to pass or whatever, we'll go and, and do what? Try to kick out the pastor that's there now and go, hey, we're back. That would be so unfair to the people, to the pastor. It would be unfair to my family. The vehicle of ministry does not have a reverse. It's only forward. Even if God puts you to a place, moves you to a place you've been before, it's still going to be different once you get there. And when Eliyahu turns, Elijah turns to Elisha, as we see around the Shama, and he says, and he just throws this up, and he's like, okay, I'm going to go say goodbye. And he's like, well, all right. What have I done? And he goes back, and I imagine the moment the first ox went down, Eliyahu's like, yeah, this guy's for real. You know what it's like when you're in a bad relationship and you sort of break up and you're like, oh, I'm never going to, you know, and you're, you're saying, we are never, ever, ever getting back together. But that never, ever is really at least till he calls again. Well, there's the idea. But this guy changed his number and he moved. Elijah turned back from him. He took the yoke of oxen, slaughtered it, boiled the flesh, and he said, all right, everyone, let's eat. Because you're not getting these back. And that's how this chapter ends. This chapter ends with this. Now, I'll be honest. I could go deeper into the next part of it, but it seems almost unfair. Because I think the Lord's already trying to tell us something as we take a look at this. Even in our small section here, God is trying to put a challenge out to us about really following Him. I want to warn you, following the Lord is not playing the role of a yo-yo. But we can try to do that. We can kind of try to follow the Lord, but then also try to find some other things and try to play both sides of this. But you can't part-time follow Jesus. Because what you're going to find is you're going to show up late to everything. Every time the Lord has got something great planned, you're going to show up after it happens because he wanted you there, but you were too busy trying to do something else. Because the Lord... He said, come on, just follow me, man. Just follow me. And you're like, I will, but can I follow you when, it, when I can always make my way back to someplace else? In other words, as long as I can get back in case I, I, this gets too much for me. 
can pull a John Mark in the book of Acts and go, this is just too much, I'm going back home. But you never really get to see the great adventure that way. Hear me with a couple quick warnings, and I think we're going to go to prayer on this because I really think we need to spend some time ruminating this in our own spirits. In the book of Exodus, when Moses is challenged to, and of course you're, you've probably seen at least the movie, if nothing else, let my people go, and Pharaoh's kind of like, no, of course not, that's stupid, you guys, you're our slaves, why would I let you go? But ultimately he tries to full, throw out these these compromises. The first is, you can go, just don't go far. Actually, the first is, why don't you just do it here? I mean, if this is all about worshiping me, worshiping God, if it's all about worshiping God, if that's really what it is, why don't you just do it here in Egypt? Well, I don't know why you need to go anywhere to do that. And then he says, well, okay, I mean, after a couple more plagues, you can go, but just don't go far. And it's like, well, you can go, just don't bring your families. And then you can go, but just don't bring your stuff. See, what Pharaoh understood in a place of bondage is that you can't really worship God in a place of bondage. I mean, you can, but it just doesn't seem to be, I mean, it seems crazy to actually shout his victory in a place where you're still totally in bondage. And he knows that you'll be so uncomfortable because you'd be trying to do that around a whole lot of people that are your captors, and it just doesn't seem to make sense. You won't do it. You'll think you'll want to do it, but you really won't get to doing it there. So you, he knows you're going to need to get out of that environment. If, In other words, church really needs to not be like the world because it needs to be a safe place for you to worship God with your guts and, and to let loose. But we could just be like, well, let's just make it just like the world. But that was the compromise that Pharaoh offered. And he knows if you do that, you'll never really do what God called you to. Well, then, not, then, then don't go far. That was the second compromise. And we get that. That's the person who sits down with you and says, Noreen, I'm getting a little concerned with you because you're kind of getting like overboard with this Jesus thing. You know, Marcy, I remember when you were kind of partly cool and partly religious, you know, and now you're like all religious. What in the world is that about? And you know, the problem is the people who are saying that really mean well, don't they? I mean, let's be honest, they genuinely mean well. They're like, I, I, and they'll say, I say this because I care, because I love you, Jaden, and because I love you, Jaden. Don't be like one of those crazy people that are shouting on a street corner, scoring all kinds of points for eternity, and Jesus is going, yeah, be like one of those people that you know, nobody really takes notice of. Just blend in with the zombies somewhere in the middle where everybody just doesn't do really anything. Come on, man. That's good religion. It's not good religion. And Pharaoh knows that. You Okay, you can go and do your little thing. Just don't really go very far because then you can find your way back. You can go back to your bondage when you're done. Well, don't take, your, don't take the people you love with you. Let's face it. Make your salvation private and quiet whatever you do i mean your relationship with god is a personal thing so nobody else should know about it hey we're all beggars and you found bread and you don't want to share how's that work and the enemy knows that if you are not willing to actually let people know and i'm not here to guilt you but i'm here to challenge you we call these we tell these people we love them and they've got to be really wondering if we really believe that jesus is the answer why we're not telling them even if it bothers them that we would tell them but if we genuinely believe he is what saves people or who saves people and we claim to love them i think it would be really rough for them to reconcile those things if we don't share Oh, just don't bring your loved ones. Because you know what? Then you'll be back. Well, let's go beyond that. Make sure that your stuff still belongs to the world. That, you know, hey, well, this isn't my ministry. This is just my job. Hey, let me just warn you. Everything you do is your ministry now. The friends you have are your ministry. Your neighborhood is your ministry. Your work is your ministry. Your school is your ministry. Because everywhere you go, if you are available to the Lord, I warn you, he just might use you there. 
And the reason is because he is so gaga in love with the people around you. He really wants to deploy you to that for purpose. There's the beauty. And here's the cool thing. You don't have to muster it up or fight or just kind of squirt it out or whatever. Make yourself available to the Lord and watch what he does. You're just the tool, my friends, just like me. And we just want to be like, I'm available. Do what you want here, Lord. There's the exciting part. By God's grace, Moses doesn't go, oh, that sounds really good. Let's give that a shot. He actually says, no, no, no. This is what God said. God said, you are getting out. You are getting out on the other side of three days to worship me. You're not going to do it here. You are going to the other side of three days for this one. There's a whole new resurrected life and it is not going to happen in Egypt. But unfortunately, Israel now at this point is just linking themselves with the world and they're just looking like the rest. And I want to warn you, as we talk about this idea of God putting a calling on your life, don't look back. Just look forward. Say goodbye to who you have to say goodbye to. And then follow the Lord with all you've got. Well, the other thing I want to just toss out as consideration as we go to prayer are two specific people in the New Testament, one you'd be more familiar with, one guy named Timothy, and the other a guy named Archippus. And the reason why is that Paul has strong expectations for both of them. In Timothy's case, Timothy is freaked out and afraid. And because he's freaked out and afraid, Timothy's just afraid to actually do what God's called him to. In this case, it's a genuine issue of fear. So Paul would say things to him like, God hasn't given you the spirit of fear. That's not God's Holy Spirit making you afraid. He's given you the spirit of power and of love, selflessness, and of a sound mind. So he says, Timothy, stir up those gifts. Stop trying to sedate them and put them under a bushel. It is time for you to get those things going, buddy. And Paul's writing that, by the way, at a time when he kind of expects to die, so it would be really important for Timothy to kind of step it up because Paul was kind of hoping Timothy would step in his shoes. But then we've got Archippus. And Archippus is actually even of a stronger exhortation because he says, tell that guy to, to seize his ministry. In other words, Archippus clearly had a call on his life and Archippus was just like, no, nah, I'm not going to do it. And understand with this, Paul goes, tell this guy, get, tell Archippus, man, what are you doing? Clearly nothing. Get on it. Now, in Timothy's case, it was an issue of fear, but in the case of Archippus, it just kind of looks like it was an issue of rebellion. And I just want to warn you, when, God, when, you, when, you just, when you're waiting on the Lord and the Lord says, I've got something for you, man, let there be a go for it in your spirit, because when there's a go for it in your spirit, beloved, you get to really get blown away by what God does. So in that situation with Paul, and he is on his first missionary journey with Barnabas. Originally, his name is Saul at that point. And, and they take with him Barnabas' cousin. His name is John Mark. And, and John Mark, they go through Turkey, and I'm sorry, they go through Cyprus. And from the east end, they kind of just teach in the synagogue. So that's kind of like going visiting a church and teaching the sermon. So, you know, it was pretty, it wasn't, there wasn't anything rough about it. They get to the west side of the island, 100 plus miles to the west, and now they get confronted by this Jewish sorcerer, and Paul has this sort of showdown with them, and this just this just blows this causes John Mark to blow a gasket. That's too much for him. So he's like, dude, I'm done. I am so done. Now obviously that's a loose paraphrase. Read it in your own. First uh, that's Acts thirteen thirteen. And what'll happen is is he so what happens is there at the top on the western end of Cyprus, two boats leave. One boat leaves to this amazing adventure with Paul and Barnabas. Now, I remind you, it was originally Barnabas and Saul. So I imagine maybe for John Mark, it was a little easier when like his cousin was in charge. But now that sort of Paul, Saul Paul is like stepping up into this role, maybe that was a little weird dynamically and politically. But in the end of it, all, it just got too much. And somewhere down the line, he's like, you know what? Yeah, there's opposition and people are kind of gunning for me now. I didn't get this before when I was hanging out with mom in Jerusalem. You know, this is just weird. I mean, how do, how do people think I'm the bad guy? 
I'm not, you know, we're just here just trying to share Jesus with people. And so John Mark's like, I'm so done. And off he goes to Jerusalem. And while that happens, now Paul and Barnabas head up into Turkey. And now they start watching massive amounts of people get saved. Yeah, and they get chased out of town. And Paul gets stoned to death and he gets raised and all that. And, I mean, there's, yeah, there's a little bit of those weird things. But there's so many people giving their life to Christ. And John Mark never saw it. All John Mark saw was that there was this like weird Harry Potterstein guy, and that was enough for him. And he was like, oh, that's just weird. I'm done. Now, he will be restored. I mean, and praise God, he is brought ultimately to Peter. I mean, who better to understand what it means to fall and be restored than Simon Peter? And to be honest, many believe, conservative scholars believe, that it's through that situation that John Mark writes down Peter's words. And because of that, we do have what's the Gospel of Mark. That's what that is. Or at least that's the believed idea of it. It's clearly John Mark writing it. And Paul will be reconciled to John Mark. That's the good news at the end of his life in Second Timothy. He says, get John Mark. He's useful for me. But what if that's you? What if tonight, as we pray now, the Lord puts his mantle on you? He says, I've got a great call on your life. Do you have a go for it in your spirit? Are you kind of like, well, I'll be honest, it sounds exciting, but I think I'd rather just read it in a book. Man, don't rob yourself of the amazing things God has already written out for you. Because when he places that mantle on you and says, all right, it's time to go. Do what I call you to do. Just be ready. It's all right. I'll say my goodbyes. I'll kill my cows. And I'll follow. Now, I don't know if you know this, but for all the cool things Elijah does, they are nothing compared to this new guy. This guy's going to do infinitely more miracles. We just don't know it yet. This guy, I mean, this guy's just going to be so cool. I mean, we're going to watch so many cool little things with this guy. We're going to be like, dang, I didn't realize this guy was so cool. And he really is one of my favorite people. There's just, I mean, and it's like Elijah's this big hairy guy. This guy is bald. That much I do know. And it's like kids were making fun of him. They're like, oh, bald head, bald head. And he's like, well, if I'm bald guy, why don't some bears just go and eat you? And bears eat him. So be careful who you make fun of like that. Just, well, you know, okay. Anyway. The guy's clearly just overflowing with the power of God and so many lives are going to be affected by it. And we would be robbed of so much of amazing history if this guy actually just went, I don't want your stinking coat, hairy fella. So I want to pray tonight for a go for it in our spirits. I want to pray that we're in this place where we're like, yeah, God, whatever it is, I'm cool with it. I'm not just available, I want to be ready. Because I warn you, God is looking for a listening ear to do amazing things. He wants to do amazing things through you. He's just looking for volunteers. Would you pray with me? Lord, I just, I feel like I've blinked. The time is done and here we are. We haven't even gotten into 20. But I want to thank you, Lord, for what you've done in these verses. Clearly, Lord, you have this word in our lives to speak into today where you really, really want us to be available. We have no record here that Elisha saw this coming. But Eliyahu came. And he threw, all he had to do is, there was no great meeting, no big briefing. It wasn't like he had this big meaning. And there's arguments on how old this guy is. He could have been a teenager. We really don't know. But he was ready. You already knew who he was. You already knew what he would do. And when you were sent, Eliyahu, this man just took the cloak and he ran with it. And I just pray, Lord, for every one of us that we would be willing tonight 
to just say yes to whatever it is you have for us. Whatever it is. So Lord, tonight in this room, we just want to tell you, Lord, we are yours. And you didn't just tell us to agree with you. You told us to follow you. So we want to start by following you. And as that's the case, you place the mantle upon us, Lord, and tell us to get busy. And we are supposed to be clothed with you, Jesus. That is our call. And as, we're, as we are, in this case, adoreted with you, may we be willing and available for whatever it is you want to do to touch this city. So we want to just tell, tell you that we're yours. Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for us. So that all of our sin could be paid in full so we don't have the burden of it to carry anymore. Thank you for being buried and burying it with, a, with you and thank you for rising again and, and raising again, leaving that behind and giving us this new life as we say yes to you. And But I pray right now if there be any unequal yoking in our lives, somebody that we're trying to convince ourselves isn't that bad when what you intend is awesome. And it may not be that bad, but it certainly isn't that best. Give us the willingness tonight, Lord, to let you sever that yoke. Where we're busy using other things as excuses to not follow you full on. You can kill those cows, Lord. And as you kill those cows, just giving us, give us a willingness to follow you, Lord, at whatever cost, knowing, Lord, that wherever you lead us will be the best place we could be. We just want to commit this to you, Lord, and just pray right now you would do that work, please, in us. Have your way. We surrender our lives to you, Lord, and pray. Lead us to fantastic and magnificent glory. And may our hearts be filled with the hope that comes with that. We give our lives to you, Lord, and we do say, Lord, here we are, use us. Jesus, in your name. And if you agree with that prayer, to just say with me, Amen.